in the middle of that series, looking at some of the realities of being and having come, being in a pandemic and what that says to us and what the gospel says to the situations in which we find ourselves. One of the things that the pandemic showed, I, I suppose, is that it brought out the best in some people. Tragedy can do that. There was outstanding efforts to, to raise funds. There were folks in, who maybe couldn't <clears throat> travel back from home to work and back again, who camped in vans and the like in order to go to work every day for months. Just great things that made some people think and some people say, well, maybe, maybe we are learning to be a more understanding, a more compassionate society. Maybe that's what's coming out of this. I'm not sure if they're still saying that, because there's plenty of evidence to the contrary. Just heard before I came out this morning of an instance in somebody in the airport in Birmingham, so I knew, no, it was none of you, um, airport in Birmingham where the person leaned over the check-in desk and grabbed the um, person who was, and, and hauled them over as such was their frustration. Okay, I understand it, but hey-ho. <clears throat> and conflict over all kinds of things, wages, working conditions, not getting my holiday or whatever is, is growing. So while there have been examples of outstanding service and blessing and folks doing great things, quickly we've seen um, what people's true colours are. And sadly that's also been the case that there's been bad behaviour too amongst professing Christians. For example, the insistence that churches should still meet through the um, lockdown and also that people shouldn't get vaccinated because that shows lack of faith in Jesus. That kind of nonsense did a lot of harm. Some of the strongest advocates of that, in fact, have died. And I did see one film clip of a church leader from his hospital bed saying that He'd been wrong to tell his flock not to be vaccinated. And now as a COVID sufferer himself, he wanted to say how awful it was. And he hadn't been being faithful. He'd been foolish. That temptation to give an explanation for something sometimes can only add hurt and it lacks compassion. I remember a young couple in my first charge in, in Rochese whose baby died and who were told not by a Christian, but by a Jehovah's Witness, that the reason that the baby died was because they weren't married. I think of someone who wrote a letter to the New Testament lecturer, Willie Barclay, saying that his daughter's death in a tragic accident at sea was God taking her life to protect her from Barclay's heresies. Now, these kind of things are just awful and have no justification and we have fallen into similar territory with Christian pronouncements about what God was doing sending the virus. But there is a book in the Old Testament, the book of Job, a long book, where all kinds of tragedy hits Job. And his friends turn up saying, well, come on, Job, you must have been bad. Look at what's happened to you. God will be doing this to punish you. So tell us, Job, come on. Dish the dirt here. What have you been up to? And Job says, no, that's, that's not the case. I've not been, done anything to deserve this. And at the end of the book, where God speaks to the situation and speaks to the characters, God rebukes the friends for saying that. 
Jesus also resisted the suggestion that tragic events were due to specific sins. From Luke's Gospel, now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will perish. Or again in John's Gospel, Jesus went along, saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Teacher, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents, said Jesus. And so a much better response is not that we try to say, oh, this is because you've done this, or this is because you've done that. That has happened as as some investment of punishment from God. A better response is to respond with care and compassion. And that's what we're looking at last week in Acts chapter 11 from the church in Antioch. Now, I think by and large, we get that. I think by and large, we see that a right and a proper response is to help rather than write somebody off or say, you must be particularly bad. Okay, we might not always live up to it, but we have that instinct that says we should be reaching out rather than just trying to find some damning explanation. But there's another response to tragedies that I want to mention, and not as an alternative to what we were looking at last week in terms of giving help and care, But a response, I think, that is tragically underused in church circles today, goodness knows we are given plenty of occasions for it, but a shallow belief, a shallow spirituality, a share in contemporary society's longing for instant solutions, a share in contemporary society's love for escapism, have all contributed to this neglect. I mean, the spiritual practice of lament. There is a place for lament. Is it pushed aside these days because it's an inconvenient truth at the heart of biblical witness? Because it expresses that there's difficult questions for faith, that things are less straightforward and complicated? Does that make it better to ignore it? But I think lament takes us a lot closer to the truth of who we are and the truth of who God is. Lament is a crying out to God, seeking his saving action. And the church has been taken in by the lie of our culture, which wants to uh, deny that there is negativity and thinks that the only response is to find the quickest way out of any inconvenience, any pain or suffering. Crying out to God because things are not right is found throughout the scriptures. The people of Israel in slavery in Egypt crying out to God for their freedom. Nehemiah traveling back to the destroyed city of Jerusalem and crying out to God for what has happened to the holy city. Ezekiel and the other prophets of the exile By the rivers of Babylon, we lay down and wept. About one-third of the Psalms are Psalms of lamenting that things are this way and they shouldn't be. 
And so if our faith is to have any biblical integrity, then it must reflect the tension between what is promised and what we experience. The tension between what we are called to hope for and what we see around us. So, firstly then, it's a question about integrity to the Scriptures. It's also a question about integrity to our own humanity. Because there is something subhuman in saying, oh, this woman died to protect you from your heresies. It is basic to our humanity to, to mourn, to protest. And to deny ourselves that is to cut ourselves off from the same part of ourselves where love comes. Grief and love have the same roots in our caring, in our compassion, in our understanding. We feel. And love and grief are not very different in terms of where they come from within us. So a failure to lament is a denial of biblical integrity. It's a failure to be properly human. But thirdly, and most seriously, it's an anemic, leads us to an anemic view of God. What kind of God would he be if he wanted us to ignore the pain and the dislocation in the world? Lament just as much as our praise should be placed within a context of a God who is faithful and a God whose faithfulness is expressed in his promises to us. The critical function of lament is to place the reality and suffering and the need for its expression within the context of the gospel story, within the faith that we affirm in the creed. And if we cannot do that, then our God is not worth much. He's no better than James Bond. It's escapism. It's a myth and not reality. And so for integrity to the scriptures, integrity to to our humanity, integrity to to the real God, we, we must wrestle with these things. So Psalm 74 that um, Eleanor read for us earlier on is just one of the many examples of lament in scripture. It's a community lament. It's a focus not on personal injury, but the the hurt to a people, God's people. And Psalm 74 is one of the most bitter complaints arising out of Israel's most bitter experiences. From exile, it's an urgent prayer for God to rouse himself after what seems a long time of silence and inactivity. Now, in the first eight verses of the psalm, the problem is stated. It seems strange to the psalmist, verse 2, that the God who rescued the people of Israel from Egypt was prepared to let them go into exile in another foreign country. Why, Lord, did you do that? Under Egypt and Pharaoh, we were having a terrible time. We were brutally oppressed. So you sent Moses and Aaron, and you brought about a great deliverance for us. You, we got free. We went through the, the, the waters of the Red Sea. We were established in the promised land. Wasn't that fantastic? So why have you let it happen all over again? Why have you let the Babylonians this time come sweeping in to take us? Why have you let the Babylonians destroy the temple, destroy Jerusalem, and take us off to, to an exit? We're just back to where Moses was. Why? There's a problem. An army, verse 8, has come and brutally destroyed the city, the temple, destroying every sign that God had been with his people. And so out of these eight verses grows, verses 9 to 11, the complaint. The complaint is that they're abandoned. 
that God's not speaking. He's not saying anything. He's staying away while his name is ridiculed. How can they believe that God is good and God is powerful when that's happening to them? Surely a good and a powerful God would step in and do something. How long, they say, verse 10. And so the two questions that are dominating in the psalmist's mind are mentioned in the complaint in verses 10 and 11. Why? Why is this happening? And two, is it going to go on forever? Is it going to go on for a long time? Why am I in this place? This is all bleak, very bleak. Now, surely you think the Lord knows this. The psalmist is not giving God new information. He's not going back to the rescue of his people um, under Moses all these years ago, and then God says, all right, enough, I'd forgotten that. That slipped my mind. He's not giving God, so what's he doing? Why, Why tell God what God already knows? Well, is it not the case that wrestling with something, teasing something out, exploring something, we we all do that, do we not, in the company of loved ones? Those those who have raised children, has it not been the case from time to time that when a a child has come and uh, saying, this is what's happening, this is what's bothering me, is that not an affirmation of of a the strength of the relationship, that they can do that. And you don't say to them, oh, I've already heard that story, I know all about it, let me go back to Coronation Street, please. You don't, because it's, 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 it's the relationship that really matters. And, and so as the psalmist struggles with this, as he, as he properly laments, as he, as he says, this, this is not right, why is this happening and how long is it going to go on for? So he's not bringing God new information, but in fact just expressing, where else am I going to go with this? Lament is to live with the hurt and to acknowledge that God is in the hurt and to seek a way out of the hurt. And so verses 1 to 8, he said what the problem is. He's made the complaint, verses 9 to 11. And then in the next section, in verses 12 to 17, he expresses trust. These verses 12 to 17 are a counterpart to verses 4 to 8. And again, the verbs are all in the past tense. In verses 4 to 8, it was what had happened. They behaved, they smashed, they burned, they said in their hearts. And in contrast to that, verses um, 12 to 17, it's about what God has done. It was you who split open. It was you. It was you who opened up the springs. This day is yours. And so on. And this is the God whom the psalmist has been calling out to because his world has caved in, because he was surrounded by pain and torment and injustice and oppression. All of it seems so awful, so total, but but hold on a minute. Let's recall, he says, what great things God has done before. And in recalling them, stress God's power, his commitment to his people, his care for his people, his provision for his people. Now, none of that is a denial of what was said in the first 11 verses, but it's something to lay alongside the words of verses 1 to 11. Verses 1 to 11 were true, but they were not the whole truth, not everything that could be said. 
as well as these disasters, there is all that he affirms about God based on what God has done and how God has revealed himself. Now, of course, the two things don't sit very easily together. This huge mess and the reality of your salvation. There's a, there's a mismatch. But that is exactly the point. We live in that context. Biblical lament is much more than simply having a moan, getting it off our chest. It is much more than just saying, let's be miserable for miserable's sake, which is no virtue or value at all. And it is much more than saying, get me out of here right now. It is the struggle, the dialogue between faith and what we're experiencing. And that's needed. That's needed if we're to have the integrity to the biblical story. That's needed if we have to have the integrity of being human in a hurting world. That's needed if we're to have the integrity of, of a, a God who's not just simply some kind of and genie out of a lamp doing what we want. The mismatch means we have to be realistic. We have to be faithful and realistic. And it's very often the case, is it not, that it's only through these um, wrestling with God, through those kind of tenacious hanging on, that we learn new lessons, that we are, that we are strengthened. There's a passage in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 um, to say one of my favorite passages of Scripture where Paul's talking about his hurt and his suffering as, a, as an apostle. We are hard-pressed on every side but not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not abandoned and struck. That, sorry, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. You see, if he had never been able to say we are hard-pressed on every side, he would not know the glory of saying but not crushed. If he had never been able to say perplexed, he would not know the value of saying but not in despair. If he'd never known the reality of being persecuted, he wouldn't know the greatness of being able to say yeah but not abandoned. If he'd never been able to say struck down, he would not know the, the, the value of saying but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. You see, it's, it's as, as things are worked through, as things are lived in, that hope that is not simply mere words, there's hope that is much better than anything that Hallmark cards can come up with or anything else, hope that is much better than the kind of people's friend kind of uh, uh, superficiality. It, it's real biblical hope in the real world, faithful to God, faithful to our humanity, faithful to this testament of Scripture that says, this, this is the stuff we have to wrestle with. And we have to wrestle with it from a place of, it's not all going very swimmingly, is it? And therefore, there is a place for lament. And out of that, verses 18 to 23 of the psalm, comes the call for God to act. And the basis of the appeal for God to act is about God's purposes, his cause, verse 22. So lament is not the same thing as saying, God, give me what I want. Lament is not when we say, Lord, I'm, I'm a bit hard up, I'm really stuck. Could I win the lottery, please? 
Lament is not about getting our way. It's about saying, how in this unfair, unjust, hurting, suffering world, how do we advance the purposes of God? How do we see the kingdom of God come? That's that's the perspective. Because that's more important. More significant for the psalmist was not just what he was feeling and hurting, what his people were feeling and hurting, But what was happening to the reputation of God? Because God is not ultimately a benefactor. He is a father who is in relationship with his people. Now what I've said today is that the church paid too little attention to the practice of lament. When confronted with things like coronavirus pandemic, warfare, or church decline and so on. The the problem very often is, and this is because of the superficial times in which we live, the response too often is that we refuse to acknowledge and face up to the changing realities. I don't get it really when somebody says to me, and a number of you do, I, I have to turn over the news, it's so depressing. I honestly don't get it. It's the world that we live in. If there's integrity, we have to live in that world. It's not the whole truth, but it's part of it. And that refusal to acknowledge, to face up to these challenging realities and ask the deep questions about what they say about our faith, what they say about our God, the outcome of that is weak faith, a weak church unable to face face head-on the challenges of life in the now-but-not-yet kingdom of God. Now, in terms of how that um, pans out, in terms of that, how works around the issues of decline in the church that I mentioned, I've not any more time for here, but I want to take that up at um, the evening service tonight, where that proper expression of lament in the church context should be. But in our current series here about the issues around COVID and so on, the practice of lament has never been more needed in our lifetimes. Worship is not escaping from life, but worship is integrating daily life and faith, bringing together our stories and God's story. And so it's a challenge not simply for our own sake. Because those in the world around us who don't believe in Christ, those seeking answers, those searching for God, don't primarily need some kind of tidy solution because the tidy solution too often results in the kind of cruel things. You're not married, that's why your baby dies. They don't need that. What they need is an experience of God that is authentic And it can only be authentic when it's real, when it's not an escape from, but an engagement with life. Isn't that what God did when he saved the world through Jesus? He came right into the hearts and the sorenesses. It wasn't escapism, it was engagement. And he calls us to do the same. He doesn't pull believers out of life as soon as we believe but sends us into all the world to bring the reality of God to bear in real life. 
He didn't rescue Moses and all the other people out of Egypt, get them into the promised land and say, right, that's it, we'll take you off now. He, he left them in the promised land to be his witnesses, to be his ambassadors, to be a light to the nation. The exile came later because they hadn't done that. We need, if we're going to give genuine and authentic answers to a world, to poor people who have lamented with them and who have wrestled with issues. Sometimes to do that is to point to ways out of our predicaments. But at other times is to sit with the questions, the challenges, the hurt and the pain and say, why, Lord? How long, Lord? I mentioned the book of Job earlier on and the three friends who turned up and said, come on, Job, you must have done this, you must have done that. There was a fourth friend in the story. And the fourth friend in the story came and just simply sat with Job in his hurt. Didn't try to give explanations and superficial reasons for this or that. He, he just sat there and, and, and shared with Job because the relationships are what count, you see. And when God did that summary at, at the end of the book and when he criticized the three friends for their cheap answers and their, their probing into Job saying, you must have sinned, he commended the fourth one for sitting there for showing compassion and understanding and for joining in lament. <coughs> it's something that the church, I think, is called to in times like these. And something that we've not done enough of. It's part of why I've said I'm opening up the sanctuary on a Friday morning for a while just to come. But you know, it doesn't have to be in church, it doesn't have to be in the sanctuary, whatever. But I want a marker that says this. This is where we are. It's, it's, it's. And Lord, where are you in this? Let us pray.